Yoakum. I'm David Yoakum. I'm the director of the lab at DC. It's my pleasure to have Professor Don Green with us today. Don is a professor at Columbia University and really a prolific researcher on a wide variety of issues, including voting, partisanship, campaign finance, hate crime, and throughout all of these, also really a, a pioneer in pushing the methodologies that are being used to study these various different topics. And so, in particular, things like randomized controlled trials and field experiments where among you know doing some of the very first field experiments on things related to campaigning for example you've also literally written one of the books on field experiments which if you haven't seen it yet I'd highly recommend what I'm hoping to do today is actually talk about some of these methodologies and kind of have a 101 if you will on what we even mean when we talk about evaluation and some of the different approaches that are available to us as not only researchers, but whenever we're in the community and talking about how well something works or not, what are the tools that we're using to inform those debates? And this is really at the heart of policy discussions and kind of making decisions about what we do in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, so with that, why don't you start us off with kind of a conceptual framework of what we even mean when we're using a word like evaluation. What are we talking about? Very often people are talking about very different things when we use that same word. Uh, I'd say that for many people, the term evaluation is really a throughput evaluation. Um, was the treatment delivered uh, as promised? You know, to what extent did the children receive the new program in their schools? To what extent did it uh, was the lesson plan carried out as planned, and so on? Um, Whereas typically what we mean when we're talking about an evaluation, especially of a program or policy, is impact evaluation. We want to know to what extent did the treatment uh, change the outcomes of the people who were exposed to it. So there we have in mind a kind of counterfactual world in which the same people would not have received the treatment and would have responded somewhat differently um, in the absence of it. Well, that's of course much harder to pull off, and that's probably why impact evaluation is more rare than, than process evaluation. Right. And in process evaluation, getting the process right can be very difficult too, which is why if you imagine administering a very large social program, lots of the initial milkwork probably is rightly thinking about are we delivering the things in the way that we think we are. But once you get that sort of nailed down, that second question of what would have happened had you not, um, doesn't, always get, doesn't always get addressed. Well, so what are some of the options or some of the methodologies that we can use to get a window into what would have happened had we done something different. So you can imagine breaking the world of impact evaluation into two general camps. You know, one would be non-experimental or observational, and the other would be experimental. To start with the experimental ones, these are uh, studies in which the treatment is assigned randomly to the units of observation. So for example, if you're doing a study of uh, whether a vaccine uh, affects your propensity to contract a communicable disease. Um, you'd randomly assign the vaccine to some people and not others. Or if you're looking at the effectiveness of a media campaign on, say, shopping intentions, you'd randomly assign some people or some media markets to treatment and not others. In a non-experimental study, you're comparing people who, for whatever reason, not necessarily random, uh, took the treatment or did not take the treatment. And that's um, on the one hand, easier, but on the other hand, more risky. And the reason is that there could be uh, unmeasured differences between the treatment and control groups who self-select into treatment that would throw off any, any comparison. So the advantage of randomized trials is that they have the potential to convince a determined skeptic. 
Uh, if you and I both know that the treatments are assigned at random, we can be more confident that there isn't some lurking variable that explains why they're different other than the treatment. But when we're talking about a non-experimental comparison, it's very hard to assuage the concerns of those who say, well, there's some lurking difference, some pre-existing difference that renders the two groups uncomparable. And so when you say random, what exactly do you mean by that? Because, I mean, one could just be I'm not paying attention, I've got a spreadsheet of names, I don't know, I'll just go and pick the top half and give them a vaccine. That's not really what you mean. No, what it's, you it's mean? funny because you know, my, my kids, uh, you say, oh, that's so random. And that, what they really meant was that it's just arbitrary. Um, by random, we mean that there is a, a reproducible procedure for allocating treatment and control uh, that, that generates known probabilities between zero and one. So for example, a random number generator on a computer, a coin flip, a draw from a deck of cards, these have known probabilities, um, whereas uh, some haphazard thing like a change in weather uh, is as if random. Randomness is really more a metaphor there than, a, than something that would meet the terms of art. All right, so flip a coin, if it's in a heads, you get a vaccine, if it's a tails, you don't. That's right. And why, I mean, so I mean, to stick with that example, or shift the example if you want, why is the randomization so key? I mean, why can't I, for example, just let people volunteer to get the vaccine, and then I've got a group of people that were vaccinated, versus the people who didn't volunteer, why not just compare those two groups? Right, right. Well, certainly the history of medicine is replete with examples of uh, biased comparisons because people self-selected into treatment. Either they self-select in because they're sicker, and uh, they're more prone to have the, the uh, symptoms associated with uh, people who need uh, a therapy uh, than are their control group comparisons. Um, or they're healthier and have maybe more resources that enable them to, uh, to buy a, a medical treatment that would otherwise be unavailable. So either way, you can get biases. And the problem is, you don't know which way the biases are going to go just by staring at a problem. You can conjecture about it, um, but it's really unclear which way it goes until, of course, you conduct the randomized trial that, that finally sorts things out. And again, the history of medical trials um, are filled with examples where the observational data pointed clearly in one direction, often um, prompting researchers to conduct a randomized trial, only to uh, find that the results were quite unexpected. Really? Do you have an example in mind? Well, hormone replacement therapy would be one case um, where it seemed as though uh, the preliminary results from a number of studies suggested that this would be a good thing to try, but the results were so disastrous for the treatment group uh, that they had to stop the trial because there was really no hope that the, the treatment group would ever catch up to the control group, let alone surpass it. Right. And so in this example of letting people volunteer, they might have been healthier to begin with and maybe sicker. That's right. And so if you see a difference, you're not sure if it was caused by the thing you did or those pre-existing differences between the groups. And I think it's even true when, when the underlying hypothesis is right. Um, so sometimes you're, the, the poor study gets the right answer, but because it's not a randomized trial, it doesn't do it in, in a convincing way. And it leaves uh, skeptics to wonder whether they're uh, just barking up the wrong tree. And a classic example would be uh, the early... Uh, studies of the polio vaccine. You know, there they compared um, parents, uh, I'm sorry, they compared children whose parents allowed them to be vaccinated to a control group that just wasn't vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So they had very different kinds of subject pools in treatment group and control group. Um, 
it seemed as though the vaccine did well, but, but of course the two groups were not obviously comparable, and the whole thing had to be done, again, on a randomized basis right. for it to be convincing. Well, so how about this then, to avoid selection bias? Just give the vaccine to everyone, and then look before and after. Uh, that would be okay in a world where there are no pre-existing trends. But of course, if the world is on the move, and uh, things are changing for reasons that have nothing to do with your intervention, uh, you could draw grossly misleading conclusions. Um, so for example, um, if the country as a whole is becoming uh, better and better educated, um, uh, you might incorrectly surmise that No Child Left Behind, a, a policy designed to, um, to increase educational attainment, uh, is effective but it may not be effective. And so I think, again, the problem with a pre-post comparison is the concern that some lurking variable, some unobserved variable, is causing the relationship between the apparent treatment and the apparent outcome. Right, right. Another, another variant of that, by the way, in the world of crime, which is close to your area, is you know, suppose you enact a policy because you think that things are getting very, very bad and you want to um, make things better. Well, you could see things get better over time simply because you regress to the mean, mm -hmm. um, not because you actually had an effect in, as a result of your treatment. Right, right. And what do you mean by regress to the mean? Uh, regress to the mean is you, you sink to the average. Um, you were above the average, and now things are going back to more or less what you'd expect. Uh, right. So if, you're, if you have a spike in crime or a spike in cancer rates or whatever it may be, chances are you're going to return to your long-term average. And um, if you go to the doctor just before you return to the long-term average, it'll look like the doctor's helping you. Right. Well, so given how a randomized design can help avoid some of these problems of selection bias, are sort of more generally being confounded by either the sort of people participating or things that are happening in the background over time. Why, why don't we see more RCTs, or maybe a slightly different way to frame that is sort of what's, is it difficult to implement these? What are the limitations of the studies? I'd say a number of things that um, basically hold back RCTs. I'd say the most important one is that people don't think they're necessary. Um, a lot of people sort of presume that they can see causation that they don't do something, but they do something, and they can see the, see the world move. And in, in some instances, that's true. You know, there, there are physicists who shoot electrons through bubble chambers, and they, they don't randomize the electrons. Um, but they've done it in such a controlled environment that there aren't very many unobserved causes that could um, influence outcomes. But in the social world, people are so different, so heterogeneous, that um, comparing individuals uh, to one another is really fraught with um, with inferential problems. Now, RCTs are a pain in the neck to administer. Um, you have to be much more exacting in maintaining the symmetry between treatment and control. You have to make sure that um, people are uh, brought into the study in the same way, that they are measured, their outcomes are measured in the same way. Um, if possible, you'd like to have the people doing the measurement be blind to the hypothesis, whereas typically in observational data analysis, you're working with data that, that are already on hand. And so you don't have to go much farther than your than the hard drive of your computer in order to, to conduct the study you want to do. So there are all kinds of reasons to, to feel that RCTs are, are a nuisance, um, but it's a bit like uh, Churchill's crack that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. You know, randomized trials are really a pain in the neck, except that everything else is, is untrustworthy. Right. And we never do that. And you mentioned another concept that's important here around blinding. 
why is that important? Maybe we could use the example of the vaccines again. Yes, that's right. You know, if I'm the one, if I'm the researcher on the front line administering the vaccines or not, what does it, what would it mean for me to be blinded and why might it be a problem if I'm not? So it's important um, to think about blind, blindedness in, in a variety of different uh, contexts, just in general, um, you'd like to have as few conscious or unconscious biases um, affect how people uh, report their, their symptoms or report or measure themselves or um, evaluate symptoms that they're measuring another person. And uh, the less they know, uh, the better off you'll be in terms of uh, maintaining symmetry between treatment and control. So for example, in the polio study, the, the, the second one, the gold-plated one, they were very careful that the doctors didn't know who received the live vaccine and who received the placebo, precisely so that they wouldn't evaluate the symptoms later on and declare something to be polio uh, at different, for, for different reasons than they would um, uh, in the control group, or the placebo group. I think in much the same way, you don't want to tell the subjects in a social science experiment what the experiment is all about. I mean, you could do it because you want to uh, be open and, uh, and transparent, but the, the risk in doing that is that they'll tell you what you want to hear, or they think you want to hear, or maybe they'll tell you the opposite of what you want to hear. Um, but one way or the other, the uh, their responses will be influenced by their knowledge of what group they're in. Right. And so if, if I gave you the vaccine and I knew, if I thought it was the vaccine and I'm the researcher and I want to believe it, and it might consciously or unconsciously be That's right. more likely to be recording, like, oh looks better, better symptoms, and then you as a subject, if you know you had it, maybe feel like you want to tell me those things that you think I want to hear. It. That's right. And in either case, you could produce a, a, a spurious treatment effect, a treatment effect that looks like the effect of the, the treatment itself, when in fact it's an artifact of measurement. Right. And that's why, although experiments don't necessarily require blindness, you typically want to have uh, the most detached, objective measurement even if it's a flawed measurement, um, apply equally to treatment and control. Right. Well, so earlier today, you were our guest speaker at lunch at DC, and you were talking about hot spotting, and one of the methodological issues that was coming up, um, in particular there, was this concept of spillover. What, what is spillover, and why does it matter for randomized designs? It's a great question. So one of the issues that uh, afflicts all studies, including observational studies, is the the idea of defining what we mean by the treatment. Now, what is the treatment? Um, what does it mean not to get the treatment? In the case of spillovers or displacement or contagion, um, the concern is that we aren't just observing a treated potential outcome or an untreated potential outcome. We're we've got some third category, which is the outcome that you get when you are uh, neighboring a, a treated outcome, or uh, the outcome that you get when you've heard about somebody else receiving the treatment. Um, these are instances where people are indirectly affected by the treatments that are assigned to others. And so what they reveal is going to critically depend on the treatments that were assigned to others as well as their, their own treatment. Well, that's a, that's a, a potential threat to any uh, design because um, we, we would ordinarily compare the average outcome in the treated group to the average outcome in the control group uh, in order to uh, find the uh, apparent difference that, that reveals the average treatment effect. But in the context of spillovers, we can't do that anymore because some of the control group, for example, is partially treated as a result of having talked to the treatment group or having had the resources that were directed at the treatment group leak out into, the, into their 
uh, environment. So in those cases, we need a much more complicated design. Earlier today, I talked about um, hotspots policing, and the problem there is, what if the, the bad guys who are chased out of the areas that are under intense police surveillance um, are now displaced to control group areas. They could increase crime in the control group and decrease it in the treatment group, and that would uh, greatly inflate the apparent effectiveness of this tactic. What do you do? Well, there's no uh, magic bullet, but one thing you can do is to vary the intensity of exposure to these spillovers and try to draw the distinction between uh, groups that are more plausibly in a pure control state and groups that are um, uh, apparently influenced uh, by indirect spillovers. And is that to sort of try to actually measure spillover itself so you can accommodate the effect size estimate accordingly? Yes, is that exactly. the idea? You're trying, to, you're trying to, to come up with the average treatment effect of this intermediate thing, this, uh, this spillover treatment as opposed to the pure direct treatment. Right. Well, I think sometimes just concrete examples help of, of randomized controlled trials. Do you have a few randomized field experiments that are the top of mind do you think are interesting concrete examples to illustrate well I'm always always thinking of examples in the area of campaigns and elections and so naturally my my imagination tends to go there I mean a, an incredibly fertile area for for randomized trials is in the area of, of persuasion so uh, whether we're talking about um, campaigns sending direct mail or running TV commercials or doing any of the 95 things that they do to try to win votes, um, we're talking about a, a, um, something that happens episodically, it happens all around the globe, um, it happens in high salience and low salience elections, and it produces results that are typically measured, not perfectly, but often to, a, to in a symmetrical way for treatment and control. And so some of my favorite um, randomized trials have to do with uh, spillover effects. Um, so, for example, if I knock on your door and encourage you to vote, um, I might ask, okay, what's the effect on people who open the door to me? But I could also ask, what's the effect uh, on their housemates? Um, so I, I talk to some people about voting, but I talk to other people about some other topic like recycling. And I ask, um, how different are the voting rates, not only of the people I talk to at the door, but their housemates, whom I didn't talk to, in order to assess the spillover effects uh, t through communication. Right. Well, let's round back for a second around what randomized control trials aren't able to inform on. And one of the things you touched on at the top of this around the kind of process or implementation evaluations around, are we actually doing the thing? we think we are, which, again, this is something that, you know, in, in government setting, actually getting the pieces right to do the thing you're trying to do can be a remarkably difficult thing to do. And, you know, sometimes people criticize RCTs of, oh, if you get a no result, how can you know that the program didn't work versus the lack of actually implementing the program properly and kind of the way to guard against that is to include you have process evaluations. That's right. Um, and what are, what about one step further still in trying to sort of actually the space of thinking about the things to do in the first place? And so I'm thinking now of people that do uh, more qualitative research, that do focus groups, that do anthropological research. Uh, your sort of thoughts on the role that these alternative methods have in the, the overall scientific process or kind of cycle of them from you know, generating the theories and then putting them to the test. Um, 
Can you speak a little bit to those types of sure. methods? Absolutely. Well, I think it's it's absolutely uh, crucial to have um, people on the ground. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things actually about field experimentation is that field experimenters in many ways have more similarities to cultural anthropologists than they do to lab experimenters. It's true that they, like lab experimenters, will randomly assign treatments. But like cultural anthropologists, they they spend a lot of time on the ground, um, in part because so much of what they uh, do um, lives or dies based on implementation. So they need to know what's going on on, on the ground. And, and typically, in, in so doing, they learn a lot about uh, local folkways and how their treatments are being perceived by, by local people. So whenever I'm doing a, a, a new study, especially in a place that I'm unfamiliar with, I try to spend time on the ground in order to, to think of hypotheses about um, what will work and under what conditions and for whom. Um, all of that kind of qualitative work is in the, in the category of um, uh, exploratory analysis that that could be confirmed or tested by by an experiment and um, I think that 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 qualitative stage is is very important because you typically want to go in with um, a, a fairly broad portfolio of interventions so that you can not only figure out uh, whether something works but under con what conditions it works especially well or poorly then on the back end I would say um, although Randomized trials are typically associated with quantitative analysis. In principle, they could be associated with qualitative measurement just as well, um, subject to the constraint that there's blinding on the back end. So you could imagine a team of cultural anthropologists who are blinded to the core hypothesis going in and assessing whether you know this village is doing better than that village, or this classroom is is you know more fractious or more friendly than some other classroom. Um, so I don't think that there's anything that's inherently uh, incompatible between experimental research and qualitative analysis. It's just that um, it, you know experimental research requires random assignment, and uh, typically the underlying ethos of maintaining an unbiased comparison between treatment and control also demands uh, blindedness or unobtrusiveness. And, and, and I would say that one of the features of experimental research that's different from, say, an anthropological approach is very often an anthropologist says, well, if I can stay long enough in a, in a given environment, I can see causality, whereas the, the experimenter is very skeptical about that. Mm -hmm. that's, that's useful. And part of the reason I ask it, it's just, it, you know, I've seen before whenever people are talking about RCTs, they sometimes get hung up or pushed back up against it. Not because they necessarily, when you sort of try to unpack the criticism, it's not that they actually doubt what it can provide as a tool for sort of testing those counterfactuals, but they're worried that we're not giving enough sort of space for those alternative methods that are needed, which to my mind are in just different parts of a life cycle of kind of inquiry. Like there is a role for more exploratory type work to generate hypotheses, but then whenever you move to the stage of wanting to test them, you need sort of different tools to, to do it. Yeah, I'd say the last part is, is probably the, the bone of contention. You know, I think that, that for many people who do evaluation, uh, you know, the, the jury is no longer out once they've gotten their focus group uh, response in or they've analyzed their survey or whatever they've done in, in a non-experimental vein. Whereas I think that for the typical, you know, randomista, uh, the jury is out until, um, until the evidence is convincing even to a determined skeptic. Right. And, and I think that what's, 
What's really interesting over the last, say, 20 years, especially over the last 10 years, is in the social sciences, there's much more in, uh, concern with benchmarking than ever before, where you take maybe a boring question, you do a large-scale randomized trial, you get a very precise answer, and then you ask what other research methodologies would recover the same answer, or would they? And I think that that has really brought a dark cloud over much of the non-experimental work that was out there that used to be accorded quite a, quite a great deal of authority. Because of what those types of comparisons are finding? Yes. Do you have any examples of mine? Well, again, in my, my field of uh, campaign craft, um, there are some very compelling examples where vast uh, randomized trials have been done on, you know, on, on interventions that are just known to be ineffective. But if you were to look at uh, an observational study of the exact same thing, you could find enormous apparent treatment effects. On it, right. Um, well, so, you know, at the lab, figuring out ways of actually implementing randomized evaluations within existing operational constraints is is really one of the things that we've, we're have we pushing for and developing a lot of expertise on. And you know, one thing I would sort of mention to the viewers is that it's often possible to do these types of evaluations at much at a much cheaper and efficient cost than you might think. If you're familiar with big giant jug trials costing ten million dollars over ten years um, by exploiting administrative data and things like that, yes. um, which I guess to kind of round out with a couple of four more questions here is that you know there does seem to be a, a new sort of momentum to try to be doing more randomized evaluations. Hopefully, groups like the lab are doing this more in the district. Mm -hmm. Sort of looking out over the frontier, are there things that you think are kind of um, roadblocks to be avoided? So what's your sort of view of whether this trajectory is going to, to continue with more randomized evaluations? Um, how can we kind of continue the trend? I think that the trajectory looks very, very good for the future of randomized trials, in part because um, there is a growing set of people, including your group, um, who are becoming adept at it. Um, those people didn't exist 20 years ago when, when I first started. I mean, it was very hard to find even five or ten social science experiments. Um, for example, in the 1990s, not a single randomized trial was published in any political science journal. So, I mean, it's a fairly recent phenomenon. I think that as people who understand randomized trials gradually move into positions of power and authority in public agencies, they become more likely to not only um, want to conduct randomized trials, but they, they want to be, de they, they become more demanding of the evidence that they will find convincing. And I think partly it's a demand thing and partly it's a supply thing. They, they, if they're asking more from the campaign consultants or internal analysts, uh, randomized trials will, will inevitably pop up. One more forward-looking question. Mm -hmm. What are you going to be working on over the next year or two or three? What should we be on the lookout for to be reading about over time? It's a, well, thank you for asking. I, I, I'm going to be working increasingly on uh, the effects of mass media, especially on uh, social behaviors, uh, so-called pro-social behaviors, having to do with uh, violence against women, uh, teacher absenteeism, things like that. So social issues that uh, could be influenced by media portrayals of normative behaviors or normatively undesirable behaviors. Um, and what's interesting about this is that the, the uh, subject is really wide open. There aren't that many studies and it's an enormously important uh, topic and it lends itself to experimentation not just in the United States but worldwide.
Well, I look forward to that. Thank you for your time today. Thank, Thank you, you for talking at the lunch at D.C. Again, Professor Don Green of Columbia University, thanks for joining us today. If you haven't already, go to the lab at D.C., thelab.dc.gov, sign up, and join us at the next lunch at D.C. in person. Thank you.